Hi, everyone. Welcome to Waste 360's Nothing Wasted podcast. On every episode, we invite the most interesting people in waste, recycling, and organics to sit down with us and chat candidly about their thoughts, their work, this unique industry, and so much more. So thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. This is Liz Bothwell from Waste 360 with Adam Minter, author of Junkyard Planet and Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. Welcome, Adam, and thank you for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I've I've been reading your work for years, and you had an interesting childhood. Could you share a bit about your background and how you ended up writing about the global waste and recycling industry? Sure. Sure. Well, I, you know, I like to say I grew up in a junkyard, which is only a slight exaggeration. My family <laughs> had been in the business since the early 20th century uh, when my uh, great-grandfather came over to the United States and uh, started work as a rag picker, eventually made his way up to Minneapolis, and, and that's where the family business was. We, we had a small uh, metal scrapyard, so I, I worked uh, there uh, really uh, as far back as I can uh, remember, um, you know, doing you know, simple tasks in the warehouse, you know, sorting plumbing scrap, whatever it might be. Um, In my 20s, I decided that um, business wasn't for me. I I, I enjoyed the business, but I was not good at it. And we had some, uh, the city of Minneapolis wanted to acquire the land for for, from our company. So I I transitioned into journalism, um, not thinking that I would actually ever return to scrap. But um, I I eventually made my way over to China as a foreign correspondent. And and the timing was good. That was 2002. As uh, many of your listeners will know, that's really when the uh, the commodity super cycle uh, really started happening and uh, really started driving up the price of scrap recyclables from all over the world. And the flow of scrap recyclables from developed countries into China, um, including from the U.S., really surged. So I had this kind of instant beat that I didn't know that I, I wanted to cover. I thought I'm getting away from recycling finally, but it was just too interesting a story. You know, it's not just about recycling. I mean, it's it's about trade and globalization. And, and it became a big part of what I, I have done for um, almost going on 20 years now. Wow, that's amazing. And I read your fantastic book, Junkyard Planet, a few years ago. And you really were one of the first people to shed light on the multi-billion dollar global recycling industry to folks outside of the industry itself. Um, so yeah, we all knew it was fantastic, but I don't think sort of the mass media understood what was going on with this amazing industry. Were you surprised by the success of that book and the continued success of this book? Yes. Um, I did not expect it to uh, to explode in the way that it did very quickly. Um, public radio was very supportive, and I, I probably should have figured that out from the beginning because uh, public radio listeners are very interested in recycling. And, and once public radio discovered the book and I started doing public radio shows, I saw uh, the audience growing and, uh, and the interest in, in this topic growing. I, and, and, and that was really gratifying. But what's really surprised me is that, you know, the book came out in 2013 and there continues to be demand for it. We just did another paperback printing and, and that demand is coming from places I never expected. Um, uh, it's being assigned in a lot of geography courses, economic geography courses in universities, at business schools. And, and that's incredibly gratifying because, um, you know, not just 
for me personally, but I, I care about the industry and I, and I truly care that people see it in the correct way. And so if it's going in front of students and graduate students and people who are going to be engaging, you know, sustainability and recycling on a very deep level, um, you know, that's, that's a really good feeling as a writer. So it's been a surprise um, and it's been, it's been a wonderful surprise. One of my career's great surprises. Oh, that's great. Good for you. And you've lived in and traveled all over Asia. So you have a, a bird's eye view of recycling conditions and what got us to where we are today. And sure. Looking back, China needed our raw materials. But when do you think the shift happened that made today's climate around the bans and regulations possible? You know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of your listeners will remember things started getting a little shaky, actually, in the early uh, in the early part of this decade. That's when we started seeing, um, you know, some of these earlier, earlier bans. Um, and I remember as far back as 2008, hearing rumors from Chinese government officials who would who would know what they are talking about, saying that there are serious discussions ongoing in Beijing about eventually ending the trade in, in recyclables. And, and at the time, I was shocked, you know, because it was booming. This is before the global financial crisis. Right. But at the time, uh, you know, what was being said was that, look, if we're ever going to develop our own recycling industry here in China, especially, you know, household recycling, um, we will need to stop competing against imported recyclables. You know, all this talk about contamination, people think of, you know, recyclables from the United States or Europe being very low quality. And, you know, and that's open to debate. But what isn't open to debate is that um, imported recyclables from, I'm just talking about the United States, but it goes for Europe or Japan, are especially important household recyclables, are of much higher quality than what's generated uh, in China. And, and that comes down to one simple fact, and that there is simply no city in China that has a, a functioning um, municipal recycling system where people are actually sorting their recyclables. So um, that in the by the theory of the Chinese government officials who I was talking to in the late uh, uh, the late part of the last decade, you know they 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 really felt that they had to get rid of some of these important recyclables because there were no incentives for uh, private entities or government to start collecting uh, from from domestic recyclers and and that I think is really where the stage was set. I know there's been a lot of talk. Um, in recent years, that this was motivated by environmental concerns, that they didn't want to be importing, you know, foreign trash. But, but at least according to the conversations I had, you know, as far back as ten years ago, uh, the real concern was that they could not compete against the quality of the imported material. Uh, okay, that makes sense. And I've heard you say, "Watch what they do; don't listen to what they say." Right? So it's <laughs> it's easy to blame the contamination, but the end it, it, that wasn't actually the case. Right. I, and that's that's always the case. And it's not just with, uh, you know, recycling it in China. You always have to, uh, I, you know, I cover other things in China even still, though I live in Malaysia. And you always have to be careful how you parse Chinese government statements. There's oftentimes other audiences for them. Um, you just don't know what the motivation is. I mean, you know, we all remember, uh, you know, the footage coming out of, say, southern China. Um, of, you know, it's it's been a few years of, of the so-called e-waste dumping ground in Guayu. And, and the government would hype Guayu you and say this is terrible terrible the you know the foreign governments are dumping their stuff and then you would see very high level politburo members go down there and tour it and extol the sustainability benefits and how it supplies raw materials and reusable parts to the tech industry there so there's always uh -huh. been 
you know, it's never been the Chinese recycling industry in general is never a black and white industry or, or a black and green industry, though, though I think we'd all like it to be. It's very complicated. And in China, um, the complications are even uh, grander, you could say. Mm-hmm, I bet. And then do you think you heard talk of this back in uh, 2008? Is China any closer to establishing more infrastructure, like modernizing their landfills or incinerators or recycling systems? Or is the, the issue still the same? They've they've really improved a lot. I okay. mean, it's, um, it, it's there's been a tremendous improvement, um, especially in the disposal uh, systems. And I'm I'm uh, I'm talking largely on the east coast of China, um, where uh, there have been massive investments made in incinerator technology. Um, you know, they're not going to uh, at least on the east coast because land is so valuable and so mm-hmm. scarce for development. They're just not going to develop landfills anymore. Though they do have some modern landfills, so they are investing in. Uh, good uh, incinerators. They're very uh, interested in, in, and have acquired Japanese incinerator technology, and, and the Japanese incinerators are, you know, are as clean as an incinerator can be. Um, so, so that's something that they've really improved uh, quite a bit. Um, in terms of the scrap recycling industry, um, it, it runs much cleaner than it did when I first arrived in China in 2002. Um, you just don't see the open burning anymore, at least in the more developed regions. I don't want to say it's always gone. It's in a massive, massive country. But, but yes, to your, to your question, I mean, there, there has been improvement, but it's, it's going to take time. And it's a massive country uh, with oh, huge yeah. city clusters. And, and, and it, does, it, won't, it won't happen in 10 years. It's, you're talking generational changes. Oh, definitely. And then how are they with public education about recycling? It, it's, I'm just comparing them to Japan. It, Japan sounds right. like they're worlds ahead of, of the U.S. in this regard. So just wondering how it is in China. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I spent a lot of time in Japan over the last two years for this for this next book, and I I consider myself a pretty good, you know, very conscientious recycler. And and the, the the granularity of instructions in Japanese homes and on the street and where you put uh, you know various containers, I mean, had me doubting myself and feeling guilty. Oh wow. uh, You know that I, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, it's fantastic, and they they really have a public ethic, and 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 there's all kinds of reasons for their cultural recycling, but but it's impressive, and I think it's hard to replicate anywhere i think i think they in terms of that public education component are 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 the tops china is not um like a lot of developing countries um you know most of the population still looks at um at recycling as an economic act as something that you know some that can be put out inside their home and somebody will pick it up so the motivation ecological the environmental motivation isn't there um during my time in Shanghai, the government, um, with um, some private entities, tried several times. Uh, there were several efforts to uh, start uh, sorting programs, getting people to do um, the equivalent of a blue bin. It was never a blue bin, um, but but getting people to think about sorting their trash, um, and it just never caught on. And when it, it was, uh, the efforts were harmed as well by the fact that, um, you know, you could see this stuff being sorted and then the garbage truck comes and everything's just thrown together into the garbage truck. And, and, and I saw that in Beijing as well. Um, so, so they've made efforts in the biggest cities, but it's, it's these efforts. I don't want to say they're half hearted, but they don't follow through on them. You know, they may last six months to a year and then it just falls off. And so it's going to take time. It's again, it's a generational change. It's a developing country uh, transitioning. And at least in the big cities, I think uh, you'll see younger people start thinking in terms of environmental issues and sustainability. But it's going to take time. Definitely. 
And then I've heard you say before that China's got the circular economy down. Do you, do you still think we can learn from them with what they're doing with everything from Christmas lights to iPhones? I do. Um, you know, one of the things, let me, let me relate to an experience I recently had. Um, I had an iPad uh, mini, uh, uh, the second generation one that had finally given up the ghost recently. And I, I wanted to, it's just, it just was done. And, and I wanted to, I didn't obviously want to throw it in the trash. I didn't want to throw it in the recycling bin. Uh, I spoke to my wife and, and she sort of crossed her arms and said, so Mr. Recycling, what are you going to do? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, one easy option would be to take it to the Apple store and, and at the Apple store, they would have taken it for free. There's no trade in value. It's a much older device and it would have been taken to a recycler and shredded and, and there would have been some raw material value taken out of it. Um, what I ended up opting to do was I went on eBay and you could find the same model of older iPad mini, uh, people bidding on them $30 to $50. Um, uh, most of the people doing the bidding had ethnic Chinese names. Some of them were in California. And so I thought, well, I'll see what happens. And, and I ended up selling it uh, with shipping for a little over $50, which far exceeds. Yeah, I mean, far exceeds, far exceeds what the uh, uh, the raw material value is in that iPad mini. Everybody knows that. So, I, you know, I didn't ask the guy who bought it what he was going to do with it. He was buying a lot of electronics I saw, um, older vintage electronics. But clearly, at that price, something was going to be reused. Either the device itself, maybe it was going to be refurbished. They, You know, whatever was not working anymore, they would uh, replace the parts in it and, and sell it in a developing country. Or they would, or they, this person or... Or whoever he works with would extract the parts. Sure. Um, that's you know, and and those parts would be resold, possibly as new, possibly as refurbished. We don't know. Um, but that's something. Of course, you can do that in the U.S. And he was in, uh, I think he was in San Jose. But but that's a much more common thing to have happen in a developing country like China, which has a large um, reuse infrastructure, massive reuse infrastructure, um, mostly based in Shenzhen, um, where instead of looking at a broken device as something that should be shredded and what limited uh, raw material will be taken out of it will be taken out of it, they look at an old device as something, as a combination of, of older parts that can be reused. And there is a massive economy, a multi-billion dollar economy in reusing parts uh, in China. And that is something that I do believe, um, you know, not just the United States, but, but the EU, which is, you know, very pushing very hard at circular economy initiatives can learn from. Um, but it's hard as well because there's all kinds of issues wrapped up within that, including intellectual property issues. Um, and, and so that makes it hard. But I do think that at least theoretically, there's something to be learned from this. Definitely. So what do you think it is the future of e-waste? As a planet, how are we going to deal with this influx as 5G comes in and we just know sort of what's coming, or at least we think we know what's coming around the corner in terms of what we will be disposing of, and it's a lot more than what we have right now? Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm both worried and not worried. Um, uh, let me tell you the not worried uh, side of it first. <laughs> One, I, you know, we often hear that um, – e-waste is the world's fastest growing uh, waste stream. You know, that's not true. The world's fastest growing waste stream, if you travel around the developing world, is automobiles. Um, and where people have gotten the idea that e-waste is it, you know, small phones, I don't know. I mean, the growth in automobiles is, is enormous, and that's a huge problem. And if you go to automobile recycling yards in the developing world, um, then you'll see a real problem, not the 
yeah, not the e-waste recycling yards. The, the, the second thing is I, I do have um, some faith that, uh, that design for recycling and design for reuse principles are starting to penetrate into uh, sort of uh, product designer and manufacturer consciousness. Uh-huh. And so I think that will be helpful. I mean, it's certainly very early, but, you know, 10 years from now, I think we will actually see um, uh, products being much more recyclable, much more reusable than they are right now. In fact, I would be astonished if it's not the case. Part of that simply has to do with the fact that the manufacturers are seeing economic incentives in it, you know, especially with batteries and certain and memory modules. There's, there's real value there. So, so I think that, uh, that value is there. Um, the other reason that I, I feel very confident in, in these, the ability of the situation to get better is because because the industry is so globalized now. So, you know, I spent quite a bit of time in West Africa uh, for uh, uh, this new book. And, and, you know, West Africa has this reputation as being a dumping ground. You know, people dump their stuff. And, uh, you know, I've never seen anything dumped in the recycling industry. I see it bought and sold, but not dumped. And, uh, and, and one of the things that happens in West Africa that I think has been, you know, wildly overlooked by people who profess to be concerned about this is the amount of e-waste that is exported out of Africa, specifically memory chips, CPUs, um, screens. And those modules, those, those parts are being exported in many cases uh, to Nigeria, where they're reused in new or refurbished devices. And an extraordinary amount of gold-bearing electronic scrap is being exported back to China. Um, so you have this robust trade, not just West Africa, but Africa in general, uh, with West Africa and China, which is very keen to get that raw material so that it can reprocess it and it can be reused again, either as parts or as, as a commodity. And China is rapidly upgrading its technology so that it can do this sort of thing in an environmentally sound way. They see an economic incentive for doing it. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very optimistic in that sense. Will everything be perfect? No, um, but but I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. You know, there are also reasons to be pessimistic. I think something that the recycling industry, the electronics industry, and the automobile industry are roundly unprepared for is the recycling of uh, electric vehicles. Uh, these are no longer going to be mechanical devices. They're 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 going to be more akin to drones with very few moving parts, a lot of silicon, a lot of um, high you know extremely expensive components and it's going to require a revolution in how um, these these products are disassembled who owns them post um uh, post, you know, first owner. And, and I'm not sure how that's all going to shake out, especially in developing countries where, um, the infrastructure may not be there to handle it. So, so it's, it's, um, it's going to be complicated. That is, and that's a good point. I hadn't even thought of that. So I want to get to ask uh, about your book, but before we do, I wanted to talk to you. I loved your recent, um, Bloomberg article that mentions their Norwegian government's proposal. That's yeah. inten- it's intended to curb the tide of plastics in our ocean. It seems like the intention is noble, but maybe short-sighted. Could you share your thoughts on this and, and give our listeners a little bit of background about your article? Sure. Well, um, uh, as we speak this week uh, in Switzerland, uh, there are the uh, COT meetings, which are basically regular uh, uh uh, meetings of signatories to um, uh, several conventions um, that are designed to restrict the export of hazardous waste to developing countries. One of these is the Basel Convention. And uh, last year, 
Norway uh, proposed amending the Basel Convention so that basically plastic waste is uh, now would now be considered a hazardous waste. And once it's considered a hazardous waste, there would be restrictions um, on its trade. Um, the intention is to make it harder and uh, and to create a more thoughtful process in how uh, waste plastics ends up in uh, the developing world. Uh, Norway, and uh, like a lot of other countries, would like to see fewer waste plastics going to the developing world. So that's what the proposal is, and it would treat waste plastics like uh, arsenic, for example. Wow. And uh, the key provision would be, the way it would work would be if somebody, currently if somebody wants to ship arsenic um, waste to a developing country, say from Norway, they would have to um, notify um, the developing country and receive consent uh, to actually make that shipment. Um, under this new Norwegian proposal, uh, the same sort of a, a, a procedure would exist for plastic waste. So, uh, and and uh, and so, I uh, my column, uh, which was uh, uh, published a few days ago, basically argues uh, that this is uh, this is going to not be good. For the oceans, but in fact, it may actually increase the amount of uh, plastics flowing into the oceans because it'll inhibit the reuse of plastics. Um, it's going to, you know, it would promote landfilling and incineration, and and you know, encourage use of, of virgin raw materials, all because uh, it's going to make the transportation and trade in waste plastics harder. Right. Wow. Okay. Well, we will be following that for sure. And packaging is a huge issue in our waste stream now. How's the, yeah. pack, the packaging situation there with Alibaba and other retailers? I would say it's a, it's reached crisis proportions. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've seen some of the pictures, uh, you know, and videos of, of what, uh, you know, some of these Chinese uh, warehouses and waste facilities look like after uh, Singles Day, which is the single largest shopping day of the year in, uh, in China and increasingly yeah. in Southeast Asia. Um, and there simply is, um, you know, you know, there's, 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 of course, there's a great amount of uh, recycling infrastructure in China, um, and and the paper recyclers in particular are keen to get all of that stuff, especially because they can't get the imported material anymore. But that's not the uh, the extent of of the problem. I mean, uh, the bigger problem and and one that uh, the government is starting to panic about in China is um, is uh, e-commerce uh, or food delivery uh, packaging. So styrofoam containers um, and other food delivery packaging uh, that's that's basically enabling China's massive, uh, there's nothing close to it in the U.S., massive, massive food e-commerce based food delivery system. Uh, there's multi-billion dollar companies now that are pretty much uh, founded upon and, and largely operate by delivering food from restaurants. Um, and by and large, the uh, the packaging that they use is not um, is not designed for recycling, and even if it were designed for recycling, it would be smeared with sauce and everything else. And as we know well, uh, in the United States and in Europe, uh, that's contamination. And so, so they're they're really kind of at a loss right now um, as to how to handle this, and it's going to be a bigger and growing uh, problem. Oh, I bet. Now, do you think solutions like robotics and AI can help with? some of the contamination issues or is the, is it just not there yet? 
It's not there yet. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, step one is going to be getting, uh, uh, and if I'm just talking, well, developing Asia in general outside of Singapore, outside of Singapore and Japan and Korea, the developed countries, uh, there just isn't the, um, the waste sorting. Uh, you know, it's not happening yet. You don't have the recycle bin in developing Asia, including China. And so obviously, you know, um, optical sorting um, and the various robotics, it's, that's just not going to be an effective solution when you've got, you know, a massively commingled, uh, you know, truck filled with food waste and other recyclables. Um, so, no, not yet. I mean, what, what China and other developing countries in Asia really need to do is they need to be able to build um, uh, household recycling infrastructure so that they, can, that they can get to the point where they can talk about robotics. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So you have a new book on the horizon called yes. called Secondhand. Could you talk more about that? I would love to hear about this one. Sure, sure. Well, uh, Secondhand really was born out of uh, the last couple chapters of Junkyard Planet. Uh, when I started uh, looking at basically, rather than just looking at commodities, I started looking at uh, whole things, you know, clothing, uh, whole electronics. And I started, you know, mulling what happens to these, not when we, you know, we drop them off at the recycling center, but what happens when we drop them off at the Goodwill? And it was a, it was a personal quest as well, because, uh, uh, like, I think most people in the developed world now, uh, I lost, you know, I lost a parent. And after you lose a parent, um, part of the mourning process, frankly, is trying to figure out what to do with the stuff they left behind. And, and I started trying to figure out what was going to happen to my mother's things after she passed away. And, and a lot of them went to Goodwill. So I made it sort of a quest to figure out what happens within sort of the thrift uh, infrastructure, the thrift industry. What does it, where do things go? Is there a better way to do it? And I just really wanted to explain to my readers, um, you know, what that all looks like. And, and the book opens literally at a Goodwill donation door. And I take you on a journey, uh, you know, from the donation door through the thrift system and around the world. Um, ultimately it's also a book about consumption because, you know, it turns out, and I kind of knew this and I think anybody in the recycling industry kind of knows it, but, but there's a real limit to how much of your stuff can be reused, whether it be clothing, computers, um, you know, the glow sticks from that concert you just went to, whatever it is, um, you know, there's, there's a very limited amount of use for it. And so, uh, the book uh, towards the end starts posing the question, you know, uh, what can we do about this? And I, I argue that the problem we have, and I think it is a problem, isn't that a crisis of quantity of stuff, but rather it's a crisis of quality, that the quality of stuff is declining. And because of that, the quantity is increasing. And so we need to start looking at ways uh, to, to improve the quality of the goods that we're buying. And in that way, we can have a better reuse system. And we'll also have less personal property flowing into the waste system. And did you see differences based on geography of how people treated their things? Yes. And, yeah. Yes. I mean, one of, you know, this was a really uh, exhausting book to do and a really fun book. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, there, it takes place in Japan, uh, Malaysia, West Africa, uh, Ghana, and uh, Benin, and all over the United States. Oh, wow. In, yeah, the, tw- uh, the Twin Cities. Um, uh, uh, the Goodwill that I focus on is uh, uh, in Tucson, Arizona, and I spend quite a bit of time with traders there because Tucson's Goodwill system uh, is really dependent upon traders coming up from Mexico. So I really show you how there, there has been, you know, so much of our thrift system, especially uh, and our thrift system in the United States, is dependent upon globalized trade. If there weren't traders coming up from Mexico, that stuff wouldn't get reused. Um, 
And so, so I, you know, to a certain extent, everybody reuses in the same way. Uh, but but what, what I think is surprising is that a lot of the stereotypes that we have about reuse um, sort of uh, go by the wayside, at least as I found them. I mean, I expected to see far more reuse in Japan. But the one thing I consistently heard in Japan, you know, home to Marie Kondo, is that they are far more wasteful than Americans. And and they actually go through things much more quickly. They're much more fashion-oriented. And, and that's why you see something like Marie Kondo emerging there. It's not because of any, you know, heightened ecological consciousness, but it's because they're you know consumers par excellence and so uh, yeah so it 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 was really interesting and i spend uh quite a bit of time there with companies that are devoted to exporting japanese property uh into developing countries because uh, i'm sure you know um japan's population is shrinking and as the population shrinks they're leaving behind a lot of stuff well where is all that stuff going to go well it's going to developing asia and africa you know and 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 the process of parsing that out and figuring out what works you know for used goods traders in mali as compared to used goods traders in the philippines is very interesting to me oh i bet oh yeah can't wait to read this. And it, it feels like, I mean, it could be just uh, the U.S. bias, but it feels like there is a movement to minimize. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I did and I did feel it. And, and if you talk to the people in the, you know, the thrift industry and Goodwill, they're feeling growth. Um, um, they are, you know, especially the condo phenomenon, uh, oh, yeah. you know, ended up pumping a lot of, uh, a lot of secondhand stuff into the system. Um, and, and there, there seems to be, and it's, it's hard to quantify, but there seems to be a growing interest in upcycling and reuse. Um, and that's really interesting and that's really encouraging. Um, one of the points of the book, however, is maybe a little bit more pessimistic, which is to say, yes, you should upcycle and reuse, but you can't, you can't upcycle and reuse your way out of our current sustainability crises. Um, ultimately, it's going to require a change in how we make and in how we manufacture stuff and how we buy it, meaning not buying the disposable TV, you know, the one that lasts three years, not, uh, you know, but buying a better quality product that lasts longer, a, a washing machine that lasts 25 years instead of uh, seven years as some of the warranties uh, promise. So, so it, it, it also refocuses things in that way. Oh, I bet. That's great. It's coming out in November? Yep, November 12th. Can we re- pre-order on Amazon? Yes, yes. If you look up Adam Minter Second Hand on Amazon, uh, you'll find the page there, and it can be pre-ordered as an ebook and as a hardcover. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, good. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks, know, yeah. You know that will be happening. Yeah. <laughs> For <Thank> sure. Thank you. <laughs> and Back to your your first book, I know that you mentioned in there, I forget which chapter, but it was that, you know, everyone thinks right now is the biggest crisis that we've ever had in recycling. Right. But right. I know that you've reminded us on Twitter that, that that's not necessarily the case. It's not all doom and gloom and, and there are solutions coming out of it. Um, what do right. you think? Well, yeah, I mean that's 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 correct. I mean, uh, one of one of my favorite parts of researching Junkyard Planet was actually going through the trade journal archives at ISRI in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in 2012, and I, I went back to the very beginning of of recycling trade magazines, the early I think it was 1905, and it, it was remarkable how many times over the next hundred years people said the recycling industry as we know it is over. Um, you know, prices are low. Um, people 
aren't buying this anymore. There's quality issues, and 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 you would see huge turnover in the number of companies and who owned the companies. But inevitably, the recycling industry um, resuscitated itself, and that is because ultimately there's value in these materials. And you know the way they flow in the markets change over and over, but ultimately there will be value. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people upset that this that these materials are now flowing into Southeast Asia, but they're flowing into Southeast Asia for two very important reasons. One, they can be reused, and two, they're they're cheap, you know, and they're cheaper than in many cases using the alternative. So, so you know, those are the new markets emerging, and perhaps the old markets are dying. Um, you know, one of the things that's I think changed in the recycling industry is that many of the participants, the people who are being hurt by this current crisis, um, entered the industry in the last twenty years, um, and they entered as the commodity supercycle began, um, not just for recycled commodities, but also for virgin commodities. And they'd never faced um, a real downturn, um, you know, quite like we've, we're seeing right now. But if you talk to people who were in the industry before the supercycle, you know, before the 1990s, they, they, they are starting to say the same thing, which is this industry as it is right now with its tighter margins and, and lower demand reminds them of the 1970s and 1980s, um, where it was a shock to see a copper, you know, copper move, you know, 10 cents in a year much less in a day. Um, but these, these older entrepreneurs and, and managers all managed to make a living in the industry. It was just harder. It wasn't instant. And, and I think some of these lessons uh, that were learned in the 70s and 80s are now being relearned now. And I think five years from now, uh, things will be going better and we'll have much more experience, hardened, I guess you would say, yes. uh, recycling professionals. And, and that will make for a more resilient industry. Definitely. Yes, there's definitely light. Now, do you think technology has shaped the global perspective on waste and recycling? I mean, you're talking about these videos and everything shared on social media. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, in some ways, I, I mean, uh, in, in many ways, I think uh, social media um, has, has actually hurt perceptions of, of the recycling industry mm-hmm. simply because it's, it's so easy to put a photo of, say, um, a young African man next to a broken computer on Twitter and, and, you know, say, look what happens to your, you know, developed country waste. Um, and there's no context there and it might be highly misleading, but it's an emotional image. And, you know, and this isn't just a problem with, you know, reporting on the recycling industry, but there's no context there. There's no nuance and it tends to get people angry and emotional, but it doesn't give somebody who might know how that computer ended up there and what the full story is. And maybe it is a sustainable story after all. It doesn't give that person the oxygen or the room um, or or even the tolerance to explain that at times. I mean, uh, I've had instances where I've tried to offer some nuance to some very, uh, you know, I would say explosive looking photos of recycling on the internet. And I know exactly what has happened there and it's not how people are taking it. And, you know, I'll be subject to, you know, your usual uh, Twitter abuse. Um, it, it yes. sort of, it becomes not worth it. And so, so I think in, in many ways, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's hurt the industry, but, but on the other hand, I I've also felt, and I have mixed feelings on this. I, I don't think that the recycling industry over the years has necessarily done a great job of, of telling its story, uh, to the mainstream. It's, it's still in my impression as somebody who grew up in it, it's a, it's an industry that likes to keep the gates closed and, and talk to itself. And, and, and there's good reasons for that, but, but, you know, increasingly in a, in a connected world, I, I think it needs to open the gates wider and be 
more willing to explain what it's doing and, and be willing to take that criticism, um, you know, while, while, you know, delivering, you know, a more nuanced message. It just has to, because the alternative is you're going to let the Twitter mobs and advocacy journalists who don't understand the economics of the recycling industry control the narrative. Right. That's a good point. And storytelling is such a huge part of yes. our lives now. And I think the recycling industry is doing a lot of good things. And, and with storytelling being such a huge part of what yes. we're all doing, regardless of industry, that we all need to do a better job of communicating it to the masses. Because to your point, otherwise, you are going to have pundits and, and um, Twitter trolls telling your story and it's, it's out of context and not necessarily true. So. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not trying to point fingers at all. Don't get me wrong. I mean, um, you know, I consider, I, I, you know, I, I consider it my responsibility to tell the story as well also. And sometimes I feel I haven't always done a good job, but I just think in general, you know, people associated with the industry should be willing to step up and, and, and tell these more subtle nuance and, and yes, Definitely. personal stories. And hopefully about the hopefully we will see more of that. You know, and the other thing that I think is positive is I think a lot of brands and large companies, um, you know, are starting to see as they as they understand that sustainability right. can't just be a label; they actually have to do it. Um, they are becoming more involved in the recycling supply chain and 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 revealing it in good ways and explaining what it is in good mm-hmm. ways. And I, I think, think so that's very important. And to that well. point, I know that you part of what you try to do is to elevate. Um, in China, what you called, you know, the, the junk men and, and the junk people. Do you think that's happening now that yeah. sustainability it is so top of mind to everyone? I, I don't think so. I mean, one of the, and I think, yeah, I, to be honest with you, I don't. I mean, one of my, I don't, you know, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but it's become a bit of a pet peeve of mine is, is the language that is used around recycling, especially the term dumping. Um, because the term dumping, um, you know, it's a very powerful word. Everybody kind of assumes they knows, know what it means, but amongst its many problems is that it takes agency away from the people who are actually doing the trading. So, you know, as I said earlier, I've never seen a load of recycling dumped in a developing country. There is always somebody in that developing country who has paid for it and imported it and paid for the shipping as someone would pay for an Amazon package and has an intention of extracting some economic value out of it. And that story is never told. I mean, if you look at the way that the recycling stories have been told over the last year about the shift to Southeast Asia, uh, you will always you always see sort of the recycling facility in San Francisco, and then the next image you'll see is the uh, is the leftover waste, say in a field in Malaysia. But who is the person who got right. that through the port, and why did they do it? You know, no, nobody is nobody is digging up those. They're not hard to dig up. I mean, they're right on the shipping documents. Um, and and I think you know, there's a certain amount of erasure going on, and and I don't think that's healthy, and I don't think it tells the industry's truths or its stories very well. And I and at times I think it also takes on a, a bit of a racial component because you know, so much of the recycle global recycling industry is mediated by people of color. They're the traders, um, most of them small business people. And yet uh, mainstream media coverage of the global recycling industry erases them almost entirely from the story. And I think that's extremely unhealthy. I hope it does. It's something that needs to change. 
So what else do you think we should be paying attention to around waste and recycling from your global perspective? One of the things that I found really interesting doing this new book was the opportunity to really dive into Mm -hmm. the state of secondhand clothing and textile recycling. And um, what I found uh, was a a market that's extremely complex, um, that's very robust, that's as globalized as anything uh, most people in the recycling industry do. But it's also a market that's about to undergo a massive disruption uh, for two big reasons. One, uh, um, the world is producing and consuming more clothes than ever before. You know, for a long time, it used to be that the buyers of secondhand clothes were in developing Asia and developing Africa, and the donors and sellers were in wealthy countries. Well, that's changing. And uh, China is now, I think, if, or will soon be the world's largest consumer of clothes. And one of the things I found when I was in Africa is there are large shipments of Chinese secondhand clothing going into Africa. And so that is driving down the price of secondhand clothing globally because there's all this new supply. At the same time as developing Asia and developing Africa get their own middle classes who want to buy new. So there's going to be, and I don't know how this is going to work out, but I I spend quite a bit of time in the new book uh, looking at this. You know, there's going to be a real shift in how textiles and clothing are handled, whether people want them. And I think think inevitably technology is going to have to come into this. But but there's a big change coming in that market. And I think, think, you know, even people who aren't involved in secondhand textiles will feel it in other ways, because I think to a certain extent it's going to be repeated in other markets that were dependent upon income inequalities to mm-hmm. make uh, to make the trades work. So what keeps you busy outside of your work? Uh, what keeps me busy oh, outside yes, of my work? I've busy. got a four-year-old. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, you know, it's uh, as soon as I'm done with work, we, I head home and Sam and I uh, head out to the big field across from our, uh, our home and kick around a soccer ball or, or just run like mad or jump on the playground equipment. And uh, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, oh. he's, he's my hobby. And so there's work and, and there's my son and, uh, and, and my wife would agree with this. And then whatever time my wife and I can squeeze in, you know, outside of all, uh, outside of what she does and what we're doing with our son, we do. So it's, I'm plenty busy and it's, it's oh, all good. What a great I, age. Enjoy a every minute thing. of that. <laughs> this has been fantastic. Can you please let us know when you will be coming to New York to do your book tour for secondhand? I absolutely will. I mean, I can tell you right now, we were actually just discussing some of this on email yesterday. I should probably be arriving in New York on November 10th, and um, there will be a launch event on the 12th oh, and probably something on the 13th as well. So, so yeah. So, so yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, this is thank great. You so much. I, really, I can't I really wait for our listeners to hear this. You, you've just given us so much to think about, and your global perspective is, is just amazing. So thank you. Good. Thanks thank again you. for having me. We'll be in Bye-bye. touch. Bye-bye. Thank you.